Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode of American Biography is brought to you by audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com forward slash American Biography. Audible has over 150,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. So download your free audiobook today by going to audibletrial.com forward slash American Biography. Hello, and welcome back to American Biography, The Life of John Marshall, Episode 5, A Niagara of Starvation, Disease, and Death. Last time, the outgeneraled and beleaguered Continental Army had just fought a face-saving draw at Germantown and was limping into winter quarters on an oddly upbeat note. They must have been looking forward to a respite of sorts, which they believed the exertions of the previous campaigning season had surely earned them. Yes, there would likely be drilling, and yes, this or that guard duty, and the overall strictures of military life would still be in place, but at least they wouldn't be fighting for their lives on a daily basis, or so they thought. True, there was no deadly combat with the British while in camp, but they would be forced instead to grapple with the invisible enemies of starvation, disease, and exposure, which posed a prolonged existential threat to the survival of the army in the winter of 1777 through 1778. The deprivations suffered by the Continental troops at Valley Forge are fairly well known, but as John Marshall was present, and as the experience greatly shaped Marshall's later outlook on the efficacy of government, as indeed the whole of his military experience did, this suffering bears special examining. The choice of Valley Forge for a camp wasn't a promising one from the beginning, and was chosen due to Washington's need to compromise between the Congress's fierce insistence that he launch a campaign to recapture Philadelphia, and his own desire to preserve the army. Valley Forge was about 20 miles northwest of Philadelphia, 
so it allowed Washington to maintain a presence in the area and theoretically threaten Howe without really endangering his own forces. Unfortunately, the surrounding area had largely been stripped bare by crossing armies during the preceding months. In fact, the situation was apparently so obvious and appreciable that one French general on scene referred to it as wintering in this desert. Once arrived, the men were broken down into groups of 12 to construct the huts in which they were to reside that winter. Whatever supplies the men brought with them to camp were soon exhausted, and resupply would prove infrequent and inadequate at the best of times that winter, while, at its nadir, impossible. The soldiers appear to have largely subsisted on a small daily ration of something called fire cake, which Beveridge describes as little more than dirty, soggy dough warmed over smoky fires. Albigence Waldo, a surgeon who maintained a diary while at Valley Forge, writes, Why are we sent here to starve and freeze? What sweet felicities have I left at home? Here, all confusion, smoke, cold, hunger, and filthiness. A pox on my bad luck. Here comes a bowl of beef soup, full of burnt leaves and dirt, sickish enough to make a hector spew. Away with it, boys. I'll live like the chameleon, upon air. However, the lack of food was not the only issue at Valley Forge. The absence of proper winter clothing, such as blankets and shoes, not only resulted in the sorts of injuries you would expect, such as frostbite, but also fueled sanitation problems, as the ill-clad soldiers were unwilling to leave the warmth of the fireside in order to seek out the latrines located a healthy distance away from their living quarters. And as a consequence, the camp thoroughfares became littered with human waste. The huts that the men crowded into for warmth reportedly smelled so bad that tar, pitch, and gunpowder were sometimes burned to try to alleviate the stink. In such unhygienic and cramped quarters, it's hardly surprising that disease subsequently tore through the camp. Smallpox, typhus, dysentery, and scurvy all thrived at Valley Forge, and in his writing, Marshall notes that an unspecified Violent, putrid fever swept off much greater numbers than all the diseases of the camp. Perhaps the most tragic aspect of the privations of Valley Forge was that it was primarily a man-made disaster, preventable and caused by the complete and abject failure of the commissariat system as conceived and implemented by the Continental Congress. As Marshall describes Congress's attempt to fix the commissary system in his account, it sounds like something akin to a bureaucratic boondoggle. There were to be two departments, the Commissary of Purchases and the Commissary General of Issues, each headed by a congressional appointee. Each department was then to have four deputies, also appointed by Congress, who were not accountable to nor removable by the respective department heads, but rather, again, were answerable only to Congress. In short, it was a system destined not only to be inefficient and incompetent, but would also prove to be fertile grounds for graft and nepotism. When the pernicious effects of the system began to manifest themselves and the army's suffering became acute, rather than address the problem, Congress simply authorized Washington to seize what provisions he needed within 70 miles of the camp for the use of the army and issue certificates that the holder could redeem later as compensation. 
It should, however, be noted that along with this authorization, Congress sent no funds with which to pay someone who presented one of these redemptive certificates. Therefore, Washington was reluctant to pursue a course of de facto confiscation because of the obvious negative impacts it would have on popular support for the revolution. Public opinion had its peaks and valleys, always, and during the course of the war, at certain times and in certain places, it could often be lukewarm. John Adams famously described the people as one-third loyalist, one-third patriot, and one-third neutral. But it's doubtful that the populace was so evenly divided, and it's safe to bet that there were many more who leaned one way or the other depending on which troops were closer at hand. Even if Congress was ignorant to the facts on the ground, in his writing, Marshall perceives clearly the ramifications of such a policy as pragmatic individuals, whatever their political sympathies, being stuck between two wintering armies and existing under the specter of property confiscation, chose to seek out the best price they could get for their goods before they were taken away from them. He writes, Provisions carried into Philadelphia which, remember, was under British occupation at the time, were paid for, in specie, at a good price. The inhabitants of that part of Pennsylvania were not zealous in support of the war, and the difference between prompt payment in gold or silver and a certificate, the value of which was often diminished by depreciation before its payment, was too great not to influence their wishes and their conduct. Valley Forge very nearly spelled the end for the Continental Army. Indeed, in one of Washington's admonishing letters written to the Congress, he stated flatly that if things did not change, the army must starve, dissolve, or disperse. Marshall reports that even when food was on hand, there was never more than a week's worth laid by, and that it was only Washington's continuous exertions, such as perpetually sending out foraging parties and constant hectoring of the surrounding state governments to send aid that the army was sustained at all through that winter. Yet despite these efforts, the returns of February showed the deplorable condition of the troops. 3,981 men rendered unfit for duty for want of clothes, and out of the 17,000 men that existed on paper, only 5,012 was the effective fighting force available. Desertion was also a reality in the face of these harsh conditions. Waldo records an instance where 50 officers resigned their commissions in a single day, citing their insignificant salaries and the plight of their families at home. He writes, When the officer has been fatiguing through wet and cold and returns to his tent where he finds a letter directed to him from his wife filled with the most heart-aching tender complaints, acquainting him with the incredible difficulty with which she procures a little bread for herself and children, whose soul would not shrink within him, who would not be disheartened from preserving in the best of causes. Of course, the implication in Waldo's account is that the officers somehow had appropriate reasons to leave the camp, that as men of property with families, they had responsibilities worth preserving that superseded those of the enlisted men. This view certainly betrays class bias, just because the enlisted men might have been young, single, and unpropertied in general, they too may have had circumstances that placed a claim on their attention and affection. They might have had elderly, infirm parents, or, like John Marshall, have been big brothers whose heart ached at the thought of their little siblings possibly suffering from the privations of war. 
But regardless of their individual circumstances, it nevertheless remained true that the enlisted men served under very different rules than the officers and would be subjected to harsh physical punishment if they attempted to resign or leave camp. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Another diarist at Valley Forge, Joseph Plum Martin, whose memoirs are widely considered to speak to the experience of the common soldier during the war, writes of resilience in the face of hardship. There was no remedy, no alternative, but this or dispersion. But dispersion, I believe, was not thought of. At least I did not think of it. So what were the obvious reasons to stay? Congress had proven negligent in its responsibility to the soldiers. The general population seemed ungenerous, self-interested, and uncaring towards them, and their commanding officers seemed unable to help. Why stay? The threat of a hundred lashes for desertion may have dissuaded some, but how bad is a possible lashing in the face of almost certain starvation? Martin, like many others, had joined the army because he was young, bored with working on the family farm and looking for adventure. But by the time of Valley Forge, he was a veteran, and his motivations had been matured by two years of hard campaigning and evolved into something more noble. He writes, We had engaged in the defense of our injured country and were willing, nay, determined, to preserve as long as such hardships were not altogether intolerable. It's easy to be skeptical of motivating factors stated like this, and though Martin's memoirs were likely based on a diary he kept during the war, it is true that they weren't published until many years later. They very well could have been romanticized and stated through a nostalgic filter. But it's also possible that the bonds forged between friends and comrades through the mutual investment of blood, sweat, and shared sacrifice not only bound each man one to another, but in turn could have attached each individually and just as strongly to their shared common cause and created a viable framework strong enough to enable the army to endure. However, even such bonds might still come undone had morale been totally lost. It's in this regard that men like John Marshall were essential to the army's survival. Many who served with Marshall and recorded their impressions of him from this time 
noted his importance in alleviating the crushing misery of camp life at Valley Forge. Much of what they say reinforces the character we glimpsed in our last episode. Lieutenant Philip Slaughter, a regular messmate of Marshall's, writes, Nothing discouraged. Nothing disturbed him. Another officer records that if any of the officers murmured at their deprivation, he would shame them by good-natured raillery or encourage them by his own exuberance of spirits. John Marshall was the best-tempered man I ever knew. Albert Beveridge brings such beautiful prose to bear when he describes his subject, Booing Spirits of Valley Forge, that I must beg your indulgence to quote him at some length. He writes, So, starving, freezing, half-blind with smoke, thinly clad, and almost shoeless, John Marshall went through the century-long weeks of Valley Forge, poking fun wherever he found despondency. His drollery bringing laughter to cold purple lips, and his light-hearted heroism shaming into erectness the bent backs of those whom hope had fled. At one time it would be this prank, another time it would be a different expedient for diversion. I want to take a step back for a moment, however, before I mistakenly give the impression that Marshall somehow single-handedly saved the army from despair. Wintering at Valley Forge, to put it bluntly, sucked. But Marshall, and men like him, of which there were undoubtedly many, were able to alleviate the gloom around them enough that the sickly and starving soldiers, by virtue of their not utterly losing all hope, could cling on to some reason to endure the brutality of the winter. Even the winter of 1777 through 1778 inevitably gave way to spring, and as the weather turned, conditions in camp gradually improved. But before we leave Valley Forge behind completely, there's still a couple of aspects of the Continental Army stay there that I need to discuss. First is Lieutenant General Frederick Wilhelm Augustus von Steuben, who had arrived at Valley Forge on February 23rd of 1778, unable to speak a lick of English. Nevertheless, Washington promptly made him Inspector General based on his alleged experience in the Prussian army, and perhaps more than a little based on an inflated rank that he'd received from a mistranslated letter of introduction that had passed from German to French and finally into English. And now von Steuben immediately set to work standardizing the Continental Drill Regiment. Von Steuben's process was rather fascinating. He would dictate or draft the drill procedure in French, which his secretary translated into English, which one of Washington's aide-de-camps, either John Lawrence or Alexander Hamilton, depending on the day, would then rewrite into more properly martial English. Then, von Steuben created a 120-man model company to demonstrate these drills and disseminate their practices throughout the greater army. And finally, there's just one more thing worth noting before we wrap up this episode. Shortly before entering winter quarters, John Marshall was appointed Deputy Judge Advocate in the Army. This would qualify as his first judicial position. In his role as Judge Advocate, he would arbitrate disputes between officers or common soldiers, and by all accounts, took the responsibility quite seriously. He was demonstrably fair, 
taking the time to hear out both sides fully, and his decisions were always accompanied by a written statement of his reasoning and delivered only after due consideration. His conduct in the execution of these duties earned him the approbation of his peers and solicited recognition for the quality of his mind from his superiors. Joseph Story wrote that he believed it was through his performance as judge advocate that Marshall first became personally acquainted with George Washington and was certain it was in this way that he first came to know Colonel Alexander Hamilton, two relationships that would prove incredibly important to Marshall's future. Okay, this is where I'm going to call it quits today. But before I end things, I do want to take just a moment and ask you to think back to the beginning of this episode. That's right, we're sponsored by Audible now. This is a great opportunity to help this podcast deal with some looming expenses related to hosting and the website, and to perhaps even make some capital investments and upgrade from the Guitar Hero microphone I'm currently speaking to you on. But your participation is key. For every person that signs up for a 30-day free Audible trial by going to www.audibletrial.com forward slash American Biography, and that's one word, American Biography, no spaces there, Audible will throw us a few bucks, and you get a free audiobook. They have tons to choose from, and you can cancel your free trial membership at any time within those 30 days with no cost to you. Get free stuff. Help American Biography. It's a total win-win. But if you're already an Audible member, or you'd prefer to support the show in another way, you can still do so through the donate button on our website, AmericanBiography.Webs.com, or you can help spread the word by liking us on Facebook, or if the spirit moves you, you can write an iTunes review, which I'm increasingly told is really, really important. As always, I do love your feedback, so please send me any suggestions, questions, comments, or concerns you have at AmericanBiographyPodcast at gmail.com. So join me next time when we'll officially wrap up Marshall's years as a soldier. Until then, thanks, and I'll talk to you soon. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. 
And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.